to Voices of the Belt and Road podcast, brought to you by the Belt and Road Advisory, your professional advisors on all matters concerning the Belt and Road Initiative. Voices of the Belt and Road is our flagship podcast, and with each episode, we'll hear the personal stories of people who are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. The aim of this podcast is to demystify the initiative by interviewing a broad array of people whose lives are impacted day in and day out by the world's largest cross-border trade initiative and infrastructure build-out. On this podcast, in addition to university researchers, think tank experts, and policymakers, you can also hear from business people, workers, and countless others involved in the Belt and Road. You'll hear people tell their own personal stories in their own languages, because at the end of the day, the Belt and Road Initiative is changing people's lives, and we want you to hear it from them. Please enjoy this week's podcast, and thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. This is your host, Ravi Prasad, and today we're very lucky to have Christopher Devonshire Ellis with us. Now, Chris is a chairman and founding partner of Design Shearer and Associates, an international tax law firm specializing in Asia. In China alone, they have more than a dozen offices, and in recent times, they have focused more on the Belt and Road Initiative through their flagship publication, Silk Road Briefing. Chris, it's really great to have you on the show. And my first question for you is, can you tell me a little bit more about Design Shearer and Associates and your work in China? Well, we, um, we I set up the firm in China in 1992. Uh, and those were very, very early days. Uh, frankly, nobody wanted to go to China in, uh, in, in those times. I, I remember my boss, uh, when I resigned to go and set up my firm, he said, Chris, don't go. Uh, China is dirty, horrible, communist. They'll rip you off, and nothing works. And um, and he he was he was correct. Um, but none none of those none of those things were fatal. Um, and uh, it coincided with um, uh, with China's uh, big push to. Um, I, I knew things would change when Deng Xiaoping said, "To get rich is glorious." Uh, they started to make Shenzhen a special economic zone. Um, and although there were a, a, a small number of other foreign consultants in China at that time, they all went off to Beijing and Shanghai. Sure. Uh, Shenzhen was yeah. not fashionable. But uh, I had an eye on the tax. Shenzhen had the lowest tax rates in the country. And I, I realized that that would attract manufacturing uh, industries to the area. And that's exactly what happened. So Decent Shura rapidly grew. Um, uh, on the basis of um, uh, uh, manufacturing companies going to Shenzhen because they had tax incentives there which uh, were more attractive than, uh, than Shanghai and, uh, and other regions at the time. So we, um, so we started off there and, of course, uh, uh, the firm developed. Um, I think about 10, 15 years later, we had uh, offices all over the country. Thanks for the introduction, Chris. Now, I know Dazan Shira and Associates have been doing work on the Belt and Road Initiative for some time now, but just tell our listeners how you first became interested in the BRI and tell us about some of the work you're doing related to it. Well, the, um, the background to that goes back quite a long way, um, uh, re- really. Uh, with, with my firm, it's, uh, we have to compete with, uh, with a lot of other practices. We're, we're in China there's a lot of consulting firms in China, sure. both Chinese and foreign. Uh, we're also in India, the same thing. There's a lot of consulting practices. So what, one of the challenges that we face is to, is to try and stand out amongst all that noise. 
Um, uh, so w- one of the ways in which we could do that is to uh, change our business model from being a China practice to being an Asia practice. Um, we, we accomplished that. The Asia practice status probably about three to four years ago. We're, we're across China, we're across India, we're in, we're in the ASEAN uh, markets. Uh, but still, there are competing firms that uh, also have that footprint. Um, but one of the th- things which I thought that we would be able to do, and it made logical sense for us, given our client base, half of our client base is from Europe, um, is that uh, we, we'd have a go at the Belt and Road, uh, because I, I felt that that was just going to be a step too far for our competitors to take on. Uh, nobody knew how to make any money out of it, and I'm not sure that we uh, necessarily do either. <laughs> uh, but it was really, it, it, at the front end, it's really uh, a mechanism to make our firm stand out and to um, to understand what's going on in the region. Um, and that includes, that, that of course includes a lot of um, what, what China is actually doing. The impact of the Belt and Road upon China itself sure. is useful for our clients in China. Um, uh, although India is not part of the Belt and Road under China's uh, remit, it, it actually very much is involved in regional infrastructure development. So this kind of, um, uh, this, this knowledge, this looking at the Belt and Road, this studying it, the research and that we put in actually increases our knowledge of China, of India, of uh, of the Asian region, which is where we are. So it, indirectly, I always thought that even if we weren't able to make money from the Belt and Road as a firm, uh, we would gain a lot in terms of uh, generating intelligence, and that's always a very very useful thing. Now, as it happens, uh, we are making money from uh, our Belt and Road. Uh, knowledge, um, particularly on the strategic and uh, business advisory issues, where we are starting to generate um, uh, business intelligence uh, uh, work from uh, from governments, some international governments, uh, and uh, and multinationals who do want to have a strategic overview of what is happening along China's Belt and Road. How can they participate? What are the political and geographical nuances? Where are the new trade corridors? So because we've put in this research uh, into it, we, we launched Silk Road Briefing uh, just over a year ago, in fact. Right. Um, we're, we're, now a year, we're now a year down the line with that, and we have a, we've got a huge amount of knowledge, which I think sets us apart from our competing firms. And that's very, very important. Um, so, um, so to answer your question in a, in a long way around... It's really, uh, it, it's all about generating more intelligence, making us as a firm more smarter, um, uh, and the impact of studying the Belt and Road impacts upon our practices throughout Asia, and particularly in China. So just, just generating that knowledge and uncovering that knowledge is very, very important for us as a practice. Um, and as I said, with, uh, we've also started to be able to monetize that uh, uh, that intelligence, which is uh, which is great. So we're Chinese always like to say it's a win-win situation, yes. and I think we I think yes. we've found that too. So win-win. Um, just on that subject, then, of how foreign enterprises, foreign governments should engage with the BRI. One of your your really interesting articles that I came across um, talked about this exact subject, and in in that um, you you say this really interesting line that I want to deep uh, dive a little bit deeper in. Um, you say. Foreign investors interested in the Belt and Road must learn to exploit the infrastructure and not necessarily participate in it. 
Um, I'm wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit more on that and give us a few examples. Yeah, um, uh, uh, there's been a lot of criticism uh, leveled at China uh, in terms of the projects, the, the infrastructure projects, which Chinese contractors are bidding on um, throughout the region and including in the European Union and, and beyond. Um, and uh, inevitably, the, the Chinese contractors are more competitive price-wise. Often they have um, a considerably more experience of uh, heavy-duty projects um, you, you've got to remember that the Chinese built a railroad from uh, from Beijing to Tibet, and uh, the, the astonishing development the country has seen yes. over the past 20 years, 25 years, that, that's been China, pretty much Chinese built. So they have a huge amount of uh, experience in building things, and that's from roads to rail, high-speed rail, um, airports, ports, you name it, they've done it. Uh, so Chinese contractors internationally are extremely competitive, both, both in terms of their competency and in terms of their pricing. Um, so um, when, uh, when foreign contractors uh, are coming up against uh, tenders, uh, which may be to build infrastructure uh, in the EU or perhaps connecting the EU with uh, markets outside the EU, uh, then um, they're, they're, they're starting to, to lose out to, uh, to Chinese contractors uh, and uh, there, there's been a lot of unhappiness about that. Yeah. But frankly, um, it's, a, it's a competitive market. You want to have a competitive market. And if, if, we, if we accept that in the majority of cases, Chinese contractors are probably going to win yeah. a lot of those projects, yeah. then, then where is the meat for foreign businesses in the Belt and Road Initiative? Where is that? And I think that the answer is actually um, it, it's okay to compete with Chinese contractors and do your best and try and try try and win the contracts yourselves. But I think the the bigger the bigger picture and the the bigger revenue slices are actually in looking at what uh, what is going on, understanding the infrastructure build and the the opportunities that that new infrastructure is going to create. And I'll I'll give you an I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. The Chinese uh, built the uh, the Southern Expressway in Sri Lanka. Yep. Um, that, um, yep. that that is a road which leads from Colombo Airport, which is uh, halfway up the west coast, all the way down south. Um, and that basically um, uh, changed the journey time from five to six hours uh, along a very busy and, and frankly slightly scary uh, road full of big lorries mm-hmm. to get down to uh, to get down to Gaul in the southern province. From five to six hours, it, it cut that back to uh, two and a half. Wow! Okay. Um, now, so wow. there's a huge difference, and that's had a um, that's had a massive impact on uh, on the tourism industry. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for example, now we're seeing uh, 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 the big hotel chains, the Shangri La, the Marriotts, uh, the uh, uh, the Six Senses, these sorts of uh, chains, and others are all going into Sri Lanka and building uh, high-end tourism resorts. Now, that has an impact because uh, that, uh, that means that architects and contractors to build hotels and villas and everything else need to start to be employed, um, uh, interior designers. Uh, there's opportunities for everyone from chefs. Um, uh, I see in Colombo now, for the first time, uh, Filipino staff right. in the hotels. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there's European managers now because they have the 
uh, experience, uh, uh, a great deal of experience in that, coming in now to Sri Lanka. Um, the local guys, the local beach bums are now going to be trained on how to be dive masters <laughs> because people want to go, go and, you know. So, so what's ha- all this is happening. Uh, the tourism industry is going through a massive boom in, uh, in Sri Lanka. And all that, that is happening is because the Chinese built a road. Now, when you look at the cost of the road, uh, I, I think that was a, a pretty expensive job. It ran into, um, you, you know, uh, two, two, I think one or two hundred million uh, dollars was spent on building that road, uh, which is a lot of money. And I understand that other contractors want part of that income. Uh, but when you look at the development of the tourism industry, uh, that is worth billions of dollars uh, and is sustainable. A road is built. People get paid. Sure. That's the end of it. With the tourism industry, which has now sprung up because of that road, um, that's worth billions and is, a, and is sustainable year in, year out. So um, really, I think that uh, people want to look uh, at getting involved in the Belt and Road. Forget about building the roads and the ports. The Chinese are very good at that and they're very competitive. Look at where the opportunities are uh, that exist in industry as a result of that infrastructure having been built. And there you'll find opportunities. Um, So that's a much more subtle way of looking at it. It does require research uh, and uh, analysis, but the way for foreign companies to participate in China's Belt and Road is to examine the infrastructure build and work out what opportunities are being created as a result of that, and then invest in those opportunities. That's really interesting. Often the narratives in Western countries regarding the Belt and Road Initiative are that it's overwhelmingly dominated by China. It's not inclusive. There's no room for foreign participation in these projects. But what you're saying here, Chris, is don't worry about that. Stop moaning about that and think about, you know, the benefits that this infrastructure is going to bring over the next three, five, ten years. I guess a follow-up question I'd have in that regard then is how do you encourage a hotel chain in Europe to think about the potential tourism effects of building a road in Sri Lanka. This is a market that they don't have too much experience navigating. It comes with its risks. So how, do you, how would you advise them to think about starting their uh, process of market intelligence gathering, doing their research, and assessing, uh, assessing in a quantifiable manner what the benefits of these projects might be? Well, um, I mean, there's there's so many industries out there that can that can benefit. I mean, um, it, as I mentioned, it's not just the hotels. Um, the hotel chains uh, tend to be internationalised, and yeah. they have the, their regional people looking at developments. They're they're, they're aware. Um, for example, in Sri Lanka, a lot of the hotel uh, uh, management that started to filter that back to head office was actually based in Singapore. Um, so it, it's it's relatively short hop from Sri Lanka to Singapore. So sure. I think it was the Singapore head offices, Asia head offices, that had a look and evaluated what was going on in Sri Lanka, liaised with the head office wherever that would be, and then made a decision to uh, to engage with Sri Lanka and started to engage with uh, consultants in Sri Lanka as to how, how to do things. And um, that's everything from acquiring land to uh, to property permits to build and. and um, uh, business plans looking forward, the return on investment, and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, but there's more industries than that. As, as I mentioned, there's architects and 
uh, and uh, uh, interior designers and uh, other contractors, hotels require bricks and mortar and all this kind of stuff to build and steel and all these sorts of things. So there's all sorts of industries to look at. So, so we, we tend not to, as a firm, we, we tend not to go out directly um, uh, and go and say, listen, Mr. Hotel Manager, have you thought about Sri Lanka or have you thought about what's going to happen in northern Macedonia? We don't yeah. do that. Um, instead, we, um, uh, we are proactive, but in terms of putting out uh, free business intelligence uh, through our various websites, and as you mentioned, uh, we own China Briefing and India Briefing, ASEAN Briefing and Silk Road Briefing. So the information is there, uh, and uh, uh, we, we, do, we are active. We have an IT department and, uh, uh, that are very good at pushing that out and a marketing department that can get that information out. Um, so the information is there if people want to look at it, um, and uh, uh, from from those websites they are then free to contact us uh, with whatever it is that they want to know. Um, and as I said, at the right at the front of the the interview, uh, the the first things they want to know is um, uh, is can it be done and what are the costs? Sure. <laughs> so um, I think one yeah. of the aspects that our firm is very good at is coming up with um, uh, or helping. Uh, clients understand their, the, get the business models right, um, which is really a feasibility to study to determine um, uh, whether this is going to be a viable economic project or not. Um, sometimes they're not, uh, but more often they are. And I think that's where, uh, where professional advice is, uh, is, uh, is required. So uh, from us, we, we try and do our best by giving away a lot of free information and um, and that filters down. Hopefully, uh, executives are passing that around and their own uh, development uh, departments to have a look at. And of course, uh, if they think that it's a good idea, then ho hopefully they'll get in touch with firms like ourselves. You, you mentioned that um, you have a few foreign governments coming to you asking for strategic overviews of the BRI. Now, I, I wonder how you think foreign governments can best support their enterprises when it comes to thinking about benefiting from the BRI. Yeah, I think there's still quite a lot of education needs to be done. We, we talked about um, the fact that a, a lot of um, national contractors are struggling to com compete with um, Chinese contractors, uh, and that, that mindset needs to change a little bit. Um, there, there was a fairly notorious letter, which um, I think all of the EU ambassadors were reported to sign, with the exception of Hungary, mm. which was sent to um, the Chinese Ministry of Commerce condemning uh, the Belt and Road Initiative um, because uh, their, the contractors from their countries uh, were unable to get involved. And I, I thought that was, uh, that was frankly rather rude and, and completely missed the point. Yep. Um, so uh, I think there's a mindset there that needs to change. Um, so governments need to, I think, I think I guess that article I wrote and my views on it are starting to change perhaps the perception of it a little bit. I hope so. There, there are opportunities there, uh, but it's not as simple as just looking to compete for building bridges and roads and airports. It's much more subtle than that. You've got to look at the, uh, uh, the uh, infrastructure opportunity, and that, that requires uh, a bit more research. It requires a bit more understanding, a bit more detailed uh, analysis. And frankly, a lot of the governments concerned uh, are in the countries where this is happening. They should be able to tell um, that if you're going to build a, a railway from uh, Belgrade to Budapest, mm. you know, what sort of uh, traffic flow is that going to produce uh, either end? 
um, what sort of uh, what what sort of business opportunities is building that uh, railway going to going to create? There there are other issues, uh, for example, with um, uh, with um, uh, Macedonia, which is going through a, a name change uh, right now. If that's approved, then that will considerably uh, uh, alleviate its. Uh, uh, its problems with the EU and its large neighbour Greece, which is important because um, Piraeus Port, the Greek port just outside of Athens, mm -hmm. is uh, is Chinese controlled and uh, is, has become the largest um, operational port in Europe. Um, so, with uh, with a country such as Macedonia bordering Greece to the north, then uh, there are huge opportunities. Or Macedonia to start uh, taking advantage of transshipment uh, from uh, from uh, from Greek ports from Piraeus actually up into Thessaloniki as an example, and then northwards through Macedonia and to disperse goods throughout the Balkans. Um, so these are opportunities which are real. Um, this whole thing with Macedonia's change of name only happened uh, a week, ten days ago, uh, but it will. Spur, uh, if not immediately, but it will definitely spur uh, uh, investment into that country. Uh, and uh, as I said, Macedonia can start to become a distribution hub for countries who want to sell products into the Balkans. Um, it, it's in the right location. Uh, from there, you can reach out into other EU markets as well, particularly Bulgaria. Um, so uh, these these places can become little mini hubs. Uh, and I think that keeping an eye on what is going on in uh, in the Belt and Road Initiative and what other governments are doing is uh, is really really important. It's also I refer to the, the when I refer to the Belt and Road, uh, I, I don't just limit that to China's involvement. A Belt and Road Initiative project is uh, is something which Chinese Chinese uh, companies have got uh, got a handle on. But when you look at what what's going on. Um, uh, there, there's more than that. For example, the uh, the North South International um, uh, uh, Highway mm -hmm. uh, connects. Um, it's a project for which India, which is not part of a Belt and Road Initiative, India and Iran uh, are involved with. And basically, what that does, it's uh, it's shipping uh, road and rail, which would allow goods from uh, the eastern port of, uh, of Bombay uh, to go through to the Iranian port of Chabahar. Uh, connect with the already pretty good Iranian uh, rail uh, network, which is also being upgraded, and head north. It will go through to uh, Azerbaijan and then up into Russia. Right. So basically, that gives uh, Indian products uh, the ability to uh, to get right into the um, uh, the Iranian and uh, and uh, Caucasus and Russian markets. Um, now there are benefits to that because uh, uh, opening up that whole infrastructure uh, uh, connectivity uh, means that uh, the cost of uh, transporting those goods and the time that it takes has been significantly reduced. It is an economically viable route. So these sorts of things are starting to, to spring up all over Eurasia. Uh, and I think that uh, there, there's a huge amount of opportunities there if people look at what are the likely uh, uh, traffic flows or, or, or container flows from Bombay through to uh, uh, to uh, Chabahar or Tehran, and then further north up into uh, up into Moscow? 
um, you know, Moscow and uh, and Delhi are becoming increasingly close. Yes. They want to expand their yes. bilateral trade. So there, there are tremendous opportunities just there, um, let alone everywhere else. So I think there's a huge amount that uh, foreign governments could look at and start to advise um, uh, countries, uh, their, their, their resident companies, about what is going on. This interconnectivity is, is happening. So be prepared because there are opportunities. Um, if you invest, you can make money in the opportunity uh, that is being presented. Uh, and I think that's, as I said, that's a mind shift. It's a softer, uh, it's a softer approach, if you like, a more subtle approach. But it's a mindset that needs to change from just saying, we want to build roads into, um, into getting the domestic companies into start thinking, we want to invest in the opportunities that these roads and rail uh, and ports are going to deliver. Uh, that, that's where the research work needs to be done. Uh, it's really fascinating. You know? uh, and as you mentioned, the, the Belt and Road Initiative is not the only initiative that's focusing on connectivity and improving um, market access between different countries in, in the region. You have Japan doing, it has its own initiatives in ASEAN too. I wonder, you know, th this feels to me like it's sort of a, a shift towards maybe what I describe as infrastructure-led growth in the wider Eurasia region. Um, do you think China has been important in catalyzing that mind shift of policymakers in the last decade or so? Yeah, I think there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, the, chi the Chinese, um, they, they did a fantastic job in their own country. Um, I mean, it doesn't always look pretty, but in terms of um, it working and being operational, um, you know, when I started out, the, the country was very, very poor. Um, and um, things just didn't work or were broken and there was no investment. Over the last 25 years, that's changed significantly. And uh, you have, um, you know, fantastic growth, fantastic rail, high high-speed rail. Um, they're building their own aircraft now, yep. uh, passenger aircraft. Yep. So they're, they're putting men into space. So there's been huge leaps in technology and, um, and what Chinese can do. So having done that domestically, they're now exporting that internationally. And it's, it's an old adage. You, you can't export internationally unless you have a strong domestic market, sure. proven domestic sure. market. And the Chinese have just followed uh, that to the T. Uh, so, yes, they've, um, they've completely driven uh, this whole idea. Uh, but other countries as well, uh, you, you know, the, the demographic changes that are happening to countries such as India, which is starting to take on the, the manufacturing uh, mantle of the world as, it, as its age demographic uh, starts to become competing with China's, which is now aging. Uh, and countries such as Russia, which has had its own uh, problems with sanctions, are now starting to get their act together to deal with that. And that connectivity uh, and um, and I think uh, a coordination uh, between uh, Beijing, to some extent Delhi, and certainly Moscow, uh, is uh, is really really interesting. Uh, it also impacts upon things such as the Eurasian Economic Union, sure. which uh, is a Russian-led uh, trade bloc, but I think is going to, in time, have a significant impact on trade. Um, when you talk about trade throughout Eurasia or anywhere in the world, it's not just about the infrastructure. It's also about the capability of making that happen. And that's a tax question. So when you start to see uh, things such as the Eurasian Economic Union signing three trade agreements with China, yeah. um, uh, India is also yeah. about to do the same. And I know that uh, the current 
which those FTA are not particularly uh, 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 detailed. Uh, but that's a minor point. The fact is that they, they exist. You can always add uh, products to free trade agreements. Um, it's difficult to get the thing negotiated to, to begin with, and that's happened between China and the Eurasian Economic Union already. The, 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 the FTA is on a statute. Uh, making changes to it is easy. Sure. So I think that with things such yeah. as the Eurasian Economic Union, um, with free trade uh, being talked about, the lowering of tariffs on, a, on an entirely uh, regional basis throughout Eurasia, um, the, 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 the Eurasian Economic Union with its free trade agreement with China has the potential, has the potential to bring Chinese goods right to the border of the European Union yep. duty-free. Yep. And uh, that's, yep. a, that's a huge thing. Um, and the same, uh, the same, India has the same potential uh, when it signs its, uh, its free trade agreement with the Eurasian Economic Union probably later in the year. Uh, that has the same potential. So in terms of um, the development of, of an international structure, I think I agree with you. We're seeing a development of that on the infrastructure and connectivity. Um, when, once we start to see the development of um, tax-based incentives for free mm. trade, then that's going to be a global um, uh, game changer. Uh, and that, uh, that structure is being put into place. It doesn't e exist right now, but as soon as uh, countries such as China... Uh, Russia, India, and the other members of the Eurasian Economic Union uh, start to um, start to lower tariffs, then you're going to see an explosion of trade. Um, and that's also a good thing for, for the European Union. You know, mm. China's got a massive consumer market. Uh, so has India. And Russia's isn't small. So um, if, if you have free trade uh, uh, with countries like that, you have tremendous opportunities to sell to those markets. I think the other thing which is starting to become apparent is as, as we travel around, as I travel around Europe increasingly, and I'm sure your other listeners will have seen this, there are lots and lots of Chinese tourists yep. all over the place. Yep. And, um, yep. uh, you know, th th those, are, those are ambassadors. Uh, if they like where they, where they are, they may bring back um, uh, some recipes or some some wine or some some other goods uh, to to remind them that their tastes are going to start to change. They're going to start to become uh, a little bit more internationalized. They're going to have slightly more international tastes, uh, and that will affect China's domestic consumer purchasing and and what Chinese consumers buy when they're back in China. They may well want to uh, to import uh, cases of British beer. They may well want to in cases of French wine. In fact, yes. we're already doing that um, uh, by, by the gallon load. Yep. They bought vineyards. Yep. Um, so all of these yep. things are, are happening. So I, I see this whole development of tax, the tax aspect of, uh, of this as being really, really important, as equally important as the infrastructure uh, deal. So if you put the two of those together, we have a very, very powerful new international uh, trade structure that is currently being built. You summed it up very eloquently when you said what is required is a mind shift, a mind shift in thinking about instead of thinking about some of the, the key concerns, the challenges, the problems related with BRI, instead put it into the bigger picture, take a five, 10 year horizon, think more of the opportunities, the benefits, um, how firms can exploit the benefits of infrastructure and, you know, this this formation of you know, something that could well change uh, the global trading sphere, right? Um, so I, I think that is highly, highly fascinating. 
Well, thank you very, very much for that. It's, uh, these are exciting times. Uh, the, uh, the connectivity from, uh, from Europe, uh, 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 the Near Orient, North Africa, Central Asia, ASEAN, China, Russia, India, uh, Australia, that is all happening right now. Um, it will take still a while to, uh, to come to fruition, but these are fascinating and very exciting times. And uh, I have to say that looking, looking at all of this, not just from a business opportunities, uh, but also the travel opportunities, yeah. uh, I have to say that the Belt and Road and everything that goes uh, along with it is seriously cool. And I'm, I'm having a lot of fun uh, with it. Um, and the great news is that uh, listeners um, can participate in that uh, and uh, and companies can make money. Um, so, um, yeah, great opportunities there for, for, for everyone. A game changer. Thank you, Ravi, for having me here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. this week's Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. If you want to learn more about the Belt and Road Initiative, check out our website at beltandroad.ventures. That's Belt and Road, one word, no spaces, and dot ventures, V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S. On the website, you can subscribe to our weekly Belt and Road Bulletin and also follow our Belt and Road Advisory social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That way, you'll always be up to date on what is happening on the Belt and Road. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.